Republicans to wake up is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, supported by great listeners like you and like James Swift, Rita Sheldrake, and Deborah Newell. If you'd like to help support our program, log on to PeterBCollins.com. On the right-hand side there on the homepage, it says you can help. And our voluntary subscriptions start as low as five bucks a month. In the second portion of this podcast today, we're going to talk to Professor Roberto Rodriguez at the University of Arizona about the new apartheid law. The Governor Jan Brewer signed last week with some fanfare. Some people having those regrets about Obama's pick of former Governor Napolitano allowing Jan Brewer to take that post. But first, we're going to talk with filmmaker Laura Poitras. She is director, producer, cinematographer of a powerful new documentary called The Oath. And we'll talk about the story in a moment. It includes the saga of Salim Hamdan, who was bin Laden's driver and who spent uh, six-plus years at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and has, uh, is one of the few people who got through the process, served his time, and has been repatriated to his home nation of Yemen. And as we talked about last week with Andy Worthington, uh, who declared it habeas week, there are still, uh, or is still, a large group of Yemenis. More than half of the remaining prisoners at Guantanamo are from Yemen, and they're caught in a, a limbo zone because of the underpants bomber from uh, Christmas of this past year. The new film is a part of a trilogy. The first uh, installment was called My Country, My Country, an Oscar-nominee documentary from 2006. And the third portion is yet to be produced. It will cover the trials of uh, 9-11, uh, the accused for 9-11. Laura Poitras is a former professional chef and uh, now a full-time filmmaker, I take it. Laura, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Hey, Peter, thanks so much. Any connection between uh, cooking professionally and making documentary films? <laughs> yeah, it's really stressful. <laughs> Both are really stressful. I mean, actually, uh, I used to be a chef in, in San Francisco. I worked at a place called Massa's. French oh, sure. And, uh, and I, when, I, when I have stress dreams, they're often about cooking. So, uh -huh. um, so I think it was a good training ground. Well, I had a couple of great meals at Masa's, and they were even better because somebody else paid for them. Yeah, no, that's, just, that's the thing. I've never gone there as a customer. You couldn't afford it, huh? That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, before we talk about the film, and in particular the story of uh, Mr. Hamdan, uh, in some of the notes that were sent to me with the film, uh, there's a statement from you, and I'd just like to read it and get you to expand a little bit. If the U.S. and other Western nations hope to confront and contain the threat of al-Qaeda... We must understand its motivations and internal divisions. To do that requires first seeing Islamic radicals as real people, subject to the human condition rather than apart from it. And to acknowledge that humanity is not a justification of their acts, but rather an acceptance of an uncomfortable reality. And I guess we're free of some of the Bush madness post-9-11, the with them or again them thing, where we were not permitted to look at uh, the events from the perspective of those who perpetrated them. And in denying ourselves that, we caricaturized our enemies. We were misled into what is a continuing uh, occupation in Afghanistan and a continuing but hopefully declining uh, occupation in Iraq. So tell me a little bit about point of view here and what kind of flack you have taken for your earlier film and now this one 
because you permit uh, those who uh, either embrace al-Qaeda or sympathize with it to express themselves. Right. I mean, I, I mean what I think, um, I can answer that in a number of different ways. In terms of um, some of the response is, you know, after I made the film in Iraq, I was put on a watch list, so the government put me on a watch list. At the same time, the government also reaches out and says, these films are important educational tools. We want to understand them. Can you come and talk to us? You know, so there's a bit of a, a schizophrenia there. I mean, I personally think that... Um, and so uh, do they send a plane for you? Because <laughs> you, you can't fly commercial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't gotten a plane offer yet. Yeah, so I, don't, okay. I don't think that's going to happen. But, um, uh, you, you know, like... Understanding, so Ali Sufan is an FBI agent yes. who interrogated several um, uh, al-Qaeda members, including Abu Jandal, and, um, you know, what, the, what those people are interested in is a minutia. Like, what makes people tick, and what are the internal divisions, and how do we understand, and how can those, you know, how can we understand what the real threat is? And, and so what I think the, one of the lessons of the film is, is not letting anyone off the hook, but what is it, what is this, you know, here's a guy who was so close to the inner circle, and yet he had he parted ways. And what was the cause of that? And I think if you can understand that, then actually the the, the number of people you you know that, that should be worried about is actually becomes increasingly smaller, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you can sort of say, okay, this guy parted ways, he was a real believer. Um, uh, you know, how many people are really supporting this? Meanwhile, we're occupying two countries now, and you know, on the precipice of getting involved in others, and and you just you know, there there, I think that there's a huge disconnect between um, the really understanding the you know the you know the threat that's out there and and what our foreign policy has been. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think it's unfortunate. So you know, so in a certain sense, you know, the film is a very di unsettling film because you have to reckon with certain things. Like here's a guy, in, you know, we see a lot of scenes with him with his son. He's he's actually a good dad, and so you have to confront that. Mm -hmm. You have to say like, here's somebody who says hateful things, um, who is Ben Laden's bodyguard, and and then also um, handle the fact that he's um, he's 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 a good dad, and 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 yet you know. Is, is talking to a son about jihad. So I, I think those are important things to, you know, to understand. And, it, well, uh, in, indeed, and we also have to understand that the rest of the world, including militant Islamists, don't have the same rosy view of the United States that is uh, pumped out of our media every day. And, you know, we, we have um, uh, stepped on their, their toes and their interests and occupied sacred ground and, and uh, you know, holy lands. And, you know, in, in so many ways, I believe what Bush did in uh, denying us any perspective on the, uh, the, under, the, 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 the motivation of those who attacked on 9-11 is that we, we really don't have a clue about how to repair the damage. And certainly uh, inserting hundreds of thousands of American troops into the Middle East is not overall helpful, and yet that's sold to us as a solution uh, to the uh, conflict with Al Qaeda. Right. I mean, I think that there, are, you know, there are some people, you know, that are are waking up to the fact that this is not a solution, and you know, hopefully those um, and those those voices will prevail. I mean, and sadly, uh, you know, it's the Obama administration has, has chosen to inherit a, a lot of policies that I think it should have, you know, um, done a done a one eighty on, for instance. Guantanamo. I mean, it's just, it's a national shame that Guantanamo is still open, and but which isn't to say that there aren't people who are there that should you know face trial. I mean, there, you know, people who commit acts of violence should be held accountable. Well, but um, but uh, I referenced Andy Worthington, and yep. I don't know if you're familiar with I his am, work. I know his work. It's just been you know really it's an amazing contribution to understanding you know the the um, the case of. of Guantanamo well, and in, and specifically, how many of them are flatly innocent of any connection right. to terrorism? Absolutely. I mean, what you did was really advance the story about Salim Hamdan, because what had been available in the American media didn't really tell us much. I mean, we knew he'd been Osama's driver, right. but we didn't know exactly when and the circumstances uh, under which he was recruited. Was he just like a taxi driver and Osama got in, or was right. he, you know, a sworn member of the inner circle of al-Qaeda? Right. So right. Uh, tell, our, tell our listeners a little bit about what you did add uh, to our understanding of Salim Hamdan. Yeah. I mean, I, there are definitely, I mean, just to, just to support what you're saying, there are definitely cases of people who were, who were sold for bounty and never should have been completely mm -hmm. uncouple. I mean, Salim Hamdan falls in a grayer area. He was clearly associated, you know, he was driving, but 
he, you know, he was a, an employee. He was a functionary. He was a driver, and and you know, these the, and was brought for war crimes. And um, and I think that. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of Nuremberg, nobody, you know, they didn't go after the cooks. You know, you go after the architects. And, um, and you know, so I think Hamdan's case is one that, you know, you can look at and it, it tests our system. Like, if we have a rule of law and principles, then they should apply. And, you know, people, for instance, should have a defense that, the, you know, the, the, in what, you know, Hamdan's victory in a Supreme Court case basically was a, a total um, defeat to the Bush administration that, that you know, that the, that the president can uh, create laws without consulting Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the film shows is that although Hamdan was victorious in the Supreme Court case in 2006, then Congress turned around and created a new set of laws, which he was then charged with, in, you know, after that. And so you're thinking, like, okay, you're going to charge him with something that wasn't a crime, you know, when he was in Afghanistan well, know, and, years and, ago. And, and, and when... so, like, what, like, why are we using a legal system that has not stood up to, you know, scrutiny. Well, and, and I just want to recall for people that that uh, bad legislation was jammed through uh, right in front of the 2006 midterm elections, sure. where Bush uh, manipulated the Congress into this uh, great ball of fear and said, we've got to, got to, got to, got to do this. And um, I referred to it as the Joe Stalin uh, Unlimited Detention and Kangaroo Court Act. Right. Right. And that's really what it is and what it was. And when President Obama went to the National Archives to uh, do a a speech in front of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and then said, well, but we're going to continue to use military commissions uh, on a limited basis. Um, It's a complete cop-out. I found it very insulting. Yeah, it is a cop-out. I mean, the military commission legal system has been rewritten now three times. You know, you don't create a, I mean, legal systems are based on precedent. We have a federal court system that works, that has tried complicated, you know, cases, including terrorism cases, and, they've, and they haven't been overturned. I mean, do we really want to use a system that, you know, that uh, hasn't, you know, proven to be, you know, withstood legal scrutiny? So uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, that uh, the Obama administration has, um, has uh, you know, want, has not you know, abolished the military commission. And you live in New York City now, Laura. Did you support citing the trials there uh, in New York? Yeah, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I mean... I, but, it would, but Bloomberg said it would have cost a billion dollars, and he wasn't willing to pay for it. Well, there was clearly... I mean, <laughs> you know, the thing, listen, our, you know, sadly, the political leaders of this country don't have a lot of courage. It would never have gotten floated as an idea if it didn't have the approval of Bloomberg and why he backtracked on it, you know, well, for political reasons. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, you know. I mean, I... I Without a doubt, these these trials should be held in federal court. Yeah? I mean, because mm-hmm. we want those people who, you know, if there's evidence against people, they should, you know, they should stand trial. I mean, you know, the people who, um, we, I mean, what are we doing? We have a prison on the, you know, in the country we don't have diplomatic relationships with so that we can put people beyond the law. I mean, when did we become that country? Well, and we have uh, kind of uh, a Gestapo mentality that has been embraced by the corporate media and, in turn, many Americans. And when Liz Cheney creates a commercial that doesn't even run on television but gets free plays on every news channel, identifying the Al-Qaeda 8, the attorneys who currently are in the Justice Department who had some representation or were in a law firm... including Neil Katyal, who is is Hamdan's Supreme Court lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, even she, though, they went too far. Like, she was rebuked for that, you know, so I, I... yeah, but she I, I, won. Don Johnson's nomination was withdrawn instead know. of uh, a, res- uh, a recess appointment, which was available to the president. But that's the, that's the failure of the Democrats for not standing up for their people. I mean, they, they just that's their job. They've got a majority. Like, if they want somebody, they can make it happen, and they just mm-hmm. have to stand behind their... You know, they shouldn't put people out there and then, you know, retract them because of political pressure. I mean, it's just... Uh, you know, so I think that that is, you know, yeah, of course there was lobbying on the, you know, from the Republicans, but that, you know, ultimately, who holds the power? And if they can't, um, you know, get there, I think they're their own worst enemies. Yeah, I hear you. Now, I referenced that more than half of the remaining prisoners at Gitmo yeah. are from Yemen. Yeah. And we now have this this kind of hold on them because it's politically untenable in the United States because of uh, Abdul Matalab the uh, young man who had the bomb in his underpants and uh, had a connection to a cleric in Yemen. Uh, You went to Yemen 
Tell us what you found, particularly in the uh, capital city of Sana'a, and the the attitude there toward uh, the U.S. and the way we have been bombing with impunity, uh, using drones and uh, other kind of remote control efforts, uh, without any permission from the Yemeni government and without any uh, you know declaration or authorization to do so. Well, I mean, I spent two years in Yemen, um, going back and forth, covering this film before you know became. You know, all news and everyone started to freak out um, about, you know, wanting to invade Yemen, which I can assure you is not a good idea. Um, I, you know, I'm, I was there, and, you know, clearly there's a lot of anti-American sentiment, you know, on the ground. And what you see in the film is these young guys who sort of circle around Abu Jandal to, you know, uh, get whatever advice about the world. And what he's actually doing is telling them not to fight. Sort of stay home and get an education, you know, um, and uh, and I do think you have this. I mean, the the you know young people who are being radicalized today, they were children in nine eleven. Like they're not, you know, these are not the disciples of Bin Laden, right? These are the the children of you know Abu Ghraib and the Iraq War. I mean, these are the things that are I think radicalizing people right now, and um, and I think you know by increased military in, intervention in these countries is. I, personally, I think only just radicalizes a, a, a new generation. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, what I think the film does is to help us, you know, grapple with what actually is the problem and, and, and to, to, you know, present some potential um, ways out. So, for instance, um, you know, Abu Jandal's not, you know, he, he departed. He, you know, he, he took a different course. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we understand that. And I think it's also important that we we show that here's a case of somebody who was, he was interrogated less than a week after 9-11, and he was read his Miranda rights. And there was valuable things learned from that. Like, you know, I, I think we need to sort of do a reset button on, on what, the way we're doing foreign policy. Yeah. Well, now just note that unlike uh, Ali Soufan, the former FBI uh, interrogator who did get uh, usable intelligence without uh, torture, you have not joined uh, Giuliani and Associates. I, I tried to reach Ali Soufan there, and I, I was a little shocked <laughs> at uh, who he's working for now. He's actually not there anymore. He started his own. He started his own firm. Oh, um, well, yeah. that, that's certainly to his credit. Yeah, it is to his credit. Yeah. His credit. Now, but I think if, if anyone knows dark secrets about the um, the, the years after nine eleven, it's Ali Soufan. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so tell us about Guantanamo too. I haven't been there. Um, it, you know, I mean, there's. Um, there's very limited access that's provided to the press, um, but, but there has been, a, you know, a press, um, it's dedicated press corps that that have that have tried to cover the situation there. Um, Carol Rosenberg is the one, I think, the only journalist who's been there um, from from the very beginning of bringing prisoners there. Um, but um, it's, um, you know, there you're you're very um, watched over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A minder at all times, I take it. Yeah, a minder, and then you know things are reviewed and. There's, um, there's, there's no sort of freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. And were there any surprises? Because I viewed these as very carefully orchestrated uh, uh, show trials. Um, but we did have along the way some principled members of our, our military uh, legal wings who uh, took their job seriously and took uh, the defense of the accused seriously as well. Um, did you have any revelations or or moments that you didn't expect? Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, uh, I, I mean, obviously the, the JAG lawyers are the heroes of the story, you know, because they're um, you know coming forward. This is not a popular thing to do in the military to represent these cases, and they're doing it based on you know principles. That you you know, there's there's you know, fair trials is what you know people. It's what you get in this, you know. That's, that's those are our legal frameworks. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that maybe is surprising for some people to see that. But I think another sort of ironic surprise is that I think perhaps the fact that Salim Hamdan, even though I think the military commissions are, an, you know, an illegitimate legal system, potentially um, his, his lenient sentence were, was because it, the jurors were people who understood chain of command. Right, mm-hmm. and so they were like, okay, so he was he was a sergeant, whatever. He was not the he was not the the person who was who was, you know, sending the orders. Like we're not, you know, he's 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 you know paid his dues. We're not going to you know hang the whole thing on him. And I, I think that probably if if he had gone, um, 
he, he might have been perceived differently um, in in a civilian court. So um, so in an ironic sense, he might have um, uh, been, you know, even though I personally think that the military commissions are not a um, a legitimate, um, uh, uh, you know, trial system. Mm-hmm. He, I think it, maybe his jurors actually were able to understand who this guy was, and you know, and the fact that they gave him time served in five months seemed to suggest that they didn't think that um, he was um, somebody that they wanted to imprison for decades. Well, and it sets a standard, Laura, because to date uh, we still have uh, a handful of convictions for uh, American service members who tortured, and they want us to believe that Lindy England and Charlie Grainer. Uh, dreamed that up all on their own, just on the night shift there at uh, Abu Ghraib. And we know, uh, it's it's well documented, and Cheney has now admitted his own role, that uh, very high-ranking officials, including Rumsfeld and David Addington in Cheney's office, uh, were, were remote control directing the torture. Uh, they were getting constant email and, and text message streams and and responding to it. Uh, and yet they want us to believe that it was just a couple of bad apples uh, at the very lowest ranks. And so to have this uh, uh, you know, kangaroo court at Guantanamo uh, produce uh, something resembling uh, the truth uh, in terms of the ultimate role that Salim Hamdan may have played, uh, that's kind of refreshing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so, too. I mean... Um... And and uh, somewhat ironic, you know. I think you know when we all heard the word military tribunals, we thought firing squad. They're like, oh, they, they, you know, they said, oh, this is, you know, he's low in the chain. He's low in the food chain. That's, you know, we don't think it makes any sense to hold him. So mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, the, the world does throw some surprises, and I, I tend not to be um, too conspiratorially minded. Um, but I certainly uh, I agree that you know this that there, that there has been no um, look at culpability in terms of how, you know, the transgressions of law that the, the U.S. participated in. Mm-hmm. And just another tidbit about Guantanamo. Did you have any knowledge or did anybody uh, whisper to you about Camp No uh, at the time you visited? No. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, Laura, um, you've got to go on to another speed dating interview. <laughs> So I thank you for joining us today, and I want to recommend the film The Oath to my listeners. And I don't have any um, uh, distribution information. Yes, yeah, it's, it's opening in uh, New York City um, on May 7th, and then it will be released um, uh, wider after that. Okay. And, and you can go, I can give you um, a website, is uh, theoathmovie.com. Theoathmovie.com. I'll put that up with the show file information here. Fantastic. Laura Poitras, great to talk with you, and thanks for making this film. Okay, thank you so much. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored today by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. And if you click on the link on my homepage, you'll qualify for a very special introductory offer from the Organic Wine Company. This happens to be Santana Day in terms of the music here on the PBC show. This one is called Migra. And it refers to La Migra, which is the immigration authorities. Arizona has stepped out to become the apartheid state through the passage of a piece of legislation that allows cops to stop people on the suspicion that they are non-citizens. Now, we had a dalliance with that uh, 15 years ago, or a little more, here in California, with the infamous Prop 187. And the people who promoted passage of that, including a desperate governor at the time named Pete Wilson, knew full well that it was four-fifths unconstitutional. And ultimately, the court held that. The federal court overturned Prop 187. But it proved to be a potent political weapon 
that was useful for the re-election of Pete Wilson, and then Republicans paid a huge price for it because it hurt their electoral chances not only in California but beyond for many cycles afterward. Now we have Senate Bill 1070 in Arizona. We're going to talk about that today with Assistant Professor Roberto Rodriguez from the University of Arizona. Professor, welcome to our program today. Yes. Um, Hello. I hope everything's well over there. Well, it's nice to talk with you. And uh, one of the cartoons that I saw recently, since uh, your governor, Jan Brewer, signed this piece of crap, (laughs) was a, a, a cartoon that showed, you know, California and Nevada and Texas and where Arizona, Arizona used to be, it's just called police. Yeah. And so tell me your reaction as a Hispanic person and uh, a professor there in Arizona to this action by your state government. Well, first off, just so you know, it's not my governor. I didn't vote for her. Nobody, in fact, in Arizona voted for her. That's right. This is the result of President Obama's choice of Janet Napolitano as Homeland Security Director. Right. So she's really you know, in uncharted water, so to speak. I think she's just trying to please. But anyway. Well, and and as long as we're talking about Jan Brewer, I have followed the election shenanigan and attempts to correct uh, election integrity issues in Arizona. And she was uh, Arizona's. I won't say yours. (laughs) It would be usted, plural, you know. Um, But she is the former Secretary of State there, and she had an absolutely dreadful record on election integrity issues. Yeah, she's referred to as the Catherine Harris of uh, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah. But enough of her. Uh, let's talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. Well, what, um, what I wanted to talk about was that because people are barely or seemingly coming to know or understand um, this bill, what is not being said is that we actually have been living this reality for many, many years already. Yeah. The only thing that's different now is that it is going to be law enforcement as opposed to the Border Patrol, Homeland Security, ICE agents, National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have a massive militarization on the border. And uh, I think in about, in about 12 years, about 5,000 deaths uh, along the border. And... Um, you know, so we're we're really in the midst of something very ugly here, and and I haven't even begun to tell you. Uh, you know, some people have have questioned the the notion that that uh, apartheid should not be used to refer to what's happening in Arizona, and I'm saying absolutely it should. Mm-hmm. The reason people don't uh, don't want to hear that is because they don't know. I'm going to give you two examples, uh, two brief examples. Well, Professor, let me just tell you, this is sure. this is not a soundbite show. Sure. So you don't have to make yourself brief uh, for my benefit. There's no commercial coming on, and I'm not going to not going to shuffle you off to take a break. Uh, so, really, tell us tell us the sure. background here, and uh, take as much time as you need. Absolutely. Okay. Number one, the same week that the bill was passed, 800 agents from around the country, you know, uh, federal agents staged a raid in South Tucson to arrest 48 suspects in a smuggling operation. I don't know if you could fathom the idea of even, say, 40 police officers Mm -hmm. in a a neighborhood. You know, think 80, about 800 federal agents. They they swooped in and took control of the geographic space. And so people were being pulled out of cars, people were being pulled out of buses, and on and on and on. Schools were under lockdown. I mean, it was a military operation the same week before it was signed by uh, Governor Brewer. And the quick math there with 800 agents is 20 agents for each person they detained. Yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible. So, I mean, but just think of the amount of physical space that they were occupying, Mm -hmm. you know, 800 agents. And uh, so, again, this is prior to the signing of this bill. And as you probably know, this bill actually does not go into effect until 90 days after uh, the, the session closes. So we're still quite a ways, and yet what is that? You know? Okay, now, number two, I challenge anyone to show me something similar to what takes place here in Tucson. We have something here called Operation Streamline. Operation Streamline takes 70 
defendants every single day. They bring them from across, from around the border. You know, they get picked up, they bring them, and try them and convict them, all 70 of them, in one hour. That's every single day. And this has been going on for several years now. Now, think about the, the concept of, I don't know that you need to do this, but I guess I'm speaking in general terms or maybe being rhetorical. How do you get a fair trial when you get 70 people you know, tried in, within one hour? Yeah. Yeah, that, that is, I mean, so when people ask me, like, oh, well, this can't be apartheid, and I'm like, well, even in the days of apartheid, they had trials. You, know, you can't even call these trials. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know I, I always say, these are kangaroo courts with apologies to the kangaroos. Yeah. Okay, so now that's number two. Number three, Joe Arpaio. I think everybody has heard of that guy, Sheriff yeah, Joe six, Arpaio. 60 Minutes loves him. I can't count how many times they've put uh, your Sheriff Joe on television. And uh, despite the uh, un-American and unconstitutional tactics that he uses, uh, they make it seem like this is all a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, so so I don't have to tell you, but th- that's his that's his whole modus operandi. That is racial profiling is what he does. Mm-hmm. And so he, he has the audacity to go on television, radio talking about that the rights of uh people are being respected. I mean, what has he been doing the last several years? Anyway, so the point being is this is all prior to uh this new SB1070. SB1070 has two primary features in it. It gives legal cover now to a police officer who, on stopping somebody, um, can ask the question, can pursue uh, the idea of legality or illegality. Um, this is new, except for those agencies that had 287G agreements, which Arpaio had, but it was withdrawn from him. In any case, um, this, it's all under the basis of reasonable suspicion. Now, that is a legal concept, reasonable suspicion. It is a notch lower or less strict, you might say, than probable cause. Right. Yeah, probable cause is pretty much a standard forever. Well, it's, it's embedded in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, and exactly. it's, it's widely eroded uh, since Bush and the domestic wiretapping, eavesdropping, no-knock uh, FBI warrants, uh, national security letters, uh, we, we've seen uh, a clear evisceration of the uh, Fourth Amendment rights of citizens. And so here we're setting a new dual standard uh, that even the watered-down Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to those who are suspected of being uh, non-citizens or undocumented. And you hit it right on the nose. All of this is on the basis of the fear of terrorism from 9-11. Um, see... I was writing about this then. I said, you know, this they're morphing this notion of brown people, whether they're Arab or Muslim, and one day it'll be Mexicans or Central Americans, and sure enough, that's what has happened. You know, we have this fear, we're governed by fear, and whether it's fear of bin Laden or fear of Mexicans or fear of bandits, you know, I don't know what they fear, but they're, they're creating this, you know, we're supposed to be afraid of everything, you know? And uh, on that basis... So now they're calling on not only putting up physical barriers, you know, militarized walls, virtual walls, the literal military, now they're diluting the, the Constitution itself. Mm-hmm. Now the second feature is related to enforcement. If a citizen, this is kind of like the Soviet style, that what people refer to, the, the snitch, you know, that is, if somebody says, hey, they're not arresting enough people. They're not questioning. So I want to sue them. There's a feature in the law that permits people or encourages people to sue. And that's pretty radical because, again, that's kind of like uh, snitching, neighbor snitching on a uh, neighbor. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging that. Well, and, and like uh, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, this uh, requires people who might be suspected and one doesn't know who that is exactly, but uh, they are now required to carry their papers and to be able to produce them. A a driver's license, uh, it would not be sufficient, and of course, many non-citizens aren't permitted to get driver's licenses, but any other form of identification uh, would not be sufficient. 
And uh, frankly, I don't even know where my birth certificate is, much less if if I were required to carry it around at all times, uh, I'd have to file to get a duplicate. Uh, And so this, again, is setting a new standard uh, of uh, requirement to clear oneself of suspicion. And so this flies in the face of the constitutional guarantee that one is presumed innocent until proven guilty. This allows a police officer or other uh, peace officer with the appropriate credentials to detain somebody uh, just based on their own whim uh, and call it a suspicion. And uh, this, again, is is a further erosion. And and for listeners who are sitting back saying, well, I don't have to worry about that because that could never happen to me, uh, I think they need to think again. Would you agree, Professor? Absolutely. Now, uh, now there's a major flaw in all of this. Um, You know, I I should ask, like, you you can ask all your listeners, how how old were you when you first got your first ID? Mm -hmm. And I think most of us are going to answer somewhere between 16 and 20. You know, in terms of a legal ID, not a school ID, but a legal ID. Yeah, most people who are born here get a, a birth certificate that uh, their parents keep, and depending on when you open a bank account or start to pay taxes, you'll get a Social Security card. But which, which, of course, is not legal ID. That's right. And so, yes, it's usually when you become driving age and voting age mm-hmm. uh, and draft age, uh, well, uh, or at least military uh, That's why I'm saying it's between 16 and 20 in general, right? Because if you're not driving, mm-hmm. you might be drafted or, and on and on. So... So at that age, so, okay, so that means anybody 15 and under, what are they supposed to do? You know, walk around with birth certificates? So that's, I mean, in other words, that's, that's a flaw in the law that they didn't even anticipate. Yeah. Uh, and, and, or maybe they did. That, that's, that's the whole per- point of why we're protesting this. Because we know that, you know, if you look like someone like myself, you know, I, if you look at me walking down the street, I'm red brown, my black hair, you know, what someone would call a typical Mexican. Mm-hmm. And I would say probably 80% of Mexicans are typical Mexicans. <laughs> so that, that is anybody that is that is going to be part of that pool. You know, uh, the governor was asked, what does an illegal alien look like? And she goes, I don't know. That's the point. You know, nobody knows. That means that they're going to have to um, ask, you know, and then because they have that legal uh, right now, they'll be able to ask anyone. Well, and Professor, a few years back, uh, I want to stress that this is not a current statistic, Mm -hmm. but I recall doing some research, and it showed that well over 58, maybe as much as 60% of so-called illegal immigrants in this country were white Europeans, Asians, or uh, let's just say non-Hispanic people by by birth. And so the discriminatory uh, angle of this is something that really needs to be emphasized because we don't have an Operation Streamline at JFK Airport where lots of people come in on a tourist visa and never leave. Yeah. And we are clearly profiling individuals based on their appearance, based on their uh, expected ethnicity in a way that uh, if, if we did this to African-Americans... Uh, would be seen as clearly racist. Yeah, yeah. And somehow this this double standard is permitted uh, because uh, a lot of white Americans sit back and smugly say, well, what don't you understand about illegal immigrants? Right, right. <laughs> well, see, th- th- this, is where, this is called dehumanization. You know, when you can refer to a class of people not by who they are but by a category, you know, it allows them to abstractly refer to people, you know, as illegal aliens. And, and we know, as you said, we're not talking about Polish people. You know, we're not talking Chicago massive operations. Mm-hmm. We're not talking, you know, all these other places. Uh, we're talking about here, especially in Arizona, you know, that illegal alien, you know, translates into Mexican. And as long as they don't say Mexican, they figure, oh, uh, they're, they're, they're in the clear. And, of course, they'll, they'll always say, Oh, we're only talking about illegal immigration. Now, see, the point of the column that I wrote is that the context of Arizona has little to do with illegal immigration. It's about an, uh, it's a civilizational clash. That guy Huntington was right before he died. 
problem is he was on the wrong end of that that clash. You know, that is, there's a sentiment in this country, in this state, of course, that all these little brown people, you know, were defeated, you know, and what are they doing here back? They don't belong here. That's pretty much the sentiment, because the laws, many of the laws here have little to do with legality. For example, the language. Language has nothing to do with legal status, and of course, um, that's a mainstay of conservative politics to demand English only around the country, mm-hmm. including here. Uh, uh, there's a bill that will be signed this week by the governor. She's expected to sign it. It's uh, HB 2281, and that one uh, outlaws, it bans ethnic studies. Now, they are so devious that this is what they have done. Because we defeated that bill last year. You know, a lot of young kids ran from Tucson to Phoenix in 115-degree heat. That's over 120 miles. We defeated that bill. So what they did is they turned around and used some Orwellian language. And now this particular bill says that you cannot teach anti-Americanism, you cannot teach hate, nor advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government. Specifically exempted are American Indian studies and African American studies. In Arizona, it's kind of like, uh, who does that leave? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about Mexican-American studies. Uh, the state superintendent has been after Mexican-American studies for about five years now. And uh, see, the, what we say, you know, the, the, the Mexican communities here, the indigenous communities, is that it's like going back to the old days, that the, the immigration is after the physical, the body. You know, they want the bodies deported. Um, Tom Horn, the superintendent, he wants our souls. He wants our spirits, and he can't have them. Mm-hmm. But that's what he wants. He, you know, see, his whole th- thesis is, is this: that in U.S. schools, Arizona schools, you can only teach things related to Western civilization. Okay, you go to his website, and he defines Western civilization as things Greco-Roman. Now, of course, Greece and Rome, we know, come from Europe. Now. Mexican-American studies, the foundation of this discipline is this continent. It is the pre-Columbian cultures and philosophies that form the foundation of Mexican-American studies. This particular program is the most successful program in this city. About 90% of all the students go on to college. Obviously, they graduate, go on to college, etc. And, you know, when he is told of this, these facts, he says, Who, it doesn't matter how successful they are. This is about what this is about Western civilization. You know, so this is what I'm talking about. What does that have to do with legal status? See, we know that it has, this is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a veneer. You know, it, it, again, it's a way to say we hate Mexicans without saying Mexicans, you know. Well, and from my point of view, Professor, um, it's the Caucasian uh, descendants of Europeans who should be required to take Mexican-American studies so that they have an appreciation for the uh, history of the land that they live on and uh, the border that they consider to be so, uh, you know, impermeable. Yeah. No, and, and, and requirement sounds tough, but, in, but of course, as you know, um, all K-12 through is requirement. And, uh, because it's not like we want to force anyone. You know, it, you know and, and the point being is that if Horn himself understood the, the, the philosophy of Mexican-American studies, it's the most awesome. Yeah, you know, what in Western culture it would be referred to is the golden rule. That is, that's pretty much the, the basis of Mexican-American studies, you know, doing to others as you, as you would have others doing to you. You know, we point out that's the tenet of, of basically all religions throughout the world. That's the same thing that, you know, it's just we have different names for it. The... the, the um, Mexican-American studies in Tucson has this program that I'm telling you about. The foundation is a concept called Inlaquez, Pancheve, and Unabgu. And those three ideas, again, are, um, are that foundation. And you're going to find those ideas across the world. Every culture has them. And this is what they're being taught. And, and apparently that's, that's not supposed to be a good thing because they are indigenous to this continent. You know, it's kind of like Unless it comes from Greece or Rome, it's invalid. Yeah. But, like, why? You know, it's, it, these are great concepts that work. Mm-hmm. It teaches the students pride. It teaches them to succeed, to excel. And, again, the top 
they are the top students in this, uh, uh, what do you call it, the district. Yeah, so, but this is, this is statewide. You know, the, these laws, you know, of course, you know, you're aware of the other ones where everybody here can run around uh, on the basis of fear uh, with concealed weapons, no training required. Right. No, it's, it's a crazy place. The, the, the Barack Obama, you know, uh, his uh, citizenship is in question. Birthplace is in question. His legitimacy is in question by the state legislature. We're not talking about extremist kooks wearing white uh, robes. We're about legislators. Well, and that's the whole context. And, and Professor, indulge me for a moment here, because uh, John McCain, your senior senator, is uh, in a very serious re-election challenge, and I believe that he is uh, uh, tasting the fruits uh, of his own. <laughs> uh, you know, misguided efforts to run for president. And if you take a look at the uh, the people who surrounded John McCain during his presidential campaign, there were well over a hundred people who are registered lobbyists and uh, the the captains of um, of bought and paid for government. Mm-hmm. And I keep a little chart here next to my microphone that was uh, produced by the Sunlight uh, Foundation. And it showed the various entities that essentially uh, created this concocted Tea Party movement. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even call it a movement. It's a, it's a PR campaign. Sure. And, for example, Nancy Fotenauer, who was one of the top advisors to McCain uh, during the presidential campaign, is uh, a principal in Americans for Prosperity. Mm-hmm. This is the group. <clears throat> that paid for the website recessrally.com mm-hmm. that uh, gave people not only strategies but also exact talking points to use to disrupt congressional town hall meetings during the summer recess last year. Mm-hmm. So the so-called Tea Party is a, a bastard child of John McCain. <laughs> and it is now biting him in the butt. Yeah, because J.D. Hayworth has seized on the more pure racism, <laughs> uh, and, and McCain is not clean. You know, I, I don't hold him up as any paragon of virtue, but the John McCain of four years ago, who claimed to be a maverick, mm-hmm. who pushed for uh, a relatively reasonable uh, Republican-led immigration reform effort, um, is now renouncing all of his past and trying to catch up with the little monsters that he created yeah. as he was trying to run for president. And J.D. Hayworth is the uh, personification of all of these so-called values that are being used to promote the draconian legislation that you just described, mm-hmm. the climate where people bring their guns to public meetings and political rallies. And this is, uh, for you know, from my point of view, uh, a very dangerous... Uh, a kind of momentum that is developing, mm-hmm. propelled by the media, not limited to Fox News, but they certainly do more than their share. And we're seeing the uh, the elements that are uh, embodied in your in Arizona's uh, SB 1070 now replicated in conservative dominated legislatures around the country. Yeah. So we have a very dangerous wave here. That is not limited to Arizona. Absolutely. Now, see, the, the, there is probably only one point of consensus amongst everybody that I do agree that it is the fault of the federal government that they have refused for all these years to be serious about the topic. Whether we're talking about Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, you know, they all have cowered. They have not stepped forward, you know. Obama, who, of course, I voted for, promised that he would have dealt with it the first year. And, um, you know, you can't fault him, so to speak, for a cowardly Congress, so to speak, that uh, acts as though they lost the election. You know, you know, Democrats won, but they're bullied by those that lost. Well, but, and, and I agree with, your, with everything you just said, but yeah. uh, I do have a slightly different take, less generous to the president. Yeah. <laughs> because he he failed to exert his leadership exactly. over members of his own party on health care, yeah. on Guantanamo, on budget issues, on nominations, including most recently the withdrawal of uh, Don Johnson. 
who really was a victim of Liz Cheney's propaganda effort naming yeah. the, the so-called Al-Qaeda 8 in the Justice Department. Right. And by throwing Van Jones under the bus uh, for what? For offending Glenn Beck and for signing a petition calling for a new investigation into 9-11? Yeah. Uh, we've seen this president cave in. Uh, the, the unilateral uh, g- givebacks on offshore drilling which is a little more important here than uh, in Arizona, I suspect. But, you know, we fought for 35 years to preserve the offshore drilling ban after a huge accident off the coast of Santa Barbara. And we're seeing the evidence now in the Gulf of uh, the safety of of offshore drilling. And Obama uh, gave offshore drilling without any givebacks from the Republicans on climate change legislation or anything else. And so we have seen him cower to Jim DeMint, mm-hmm. who would hold up uh, nominations, uh, the the maniac Jim Bunning, who unfortunately graduated from the same high school I did, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was permitted to uh, impose his lunacy uh, by putting holds on legislation and nomination. And so uh, I really feel that this president has failed to lead and well, no, has, that's, that's has, what I'm saying. So has failed words, to confront. I'm not exempting him. That's exactly what the point, right? Okay. That is, every president from, you know, well, actually forever, but especially the last four or five, you know, Obama is in the same category. Mm-hmm. They have not stepped up to the plate, even though he, he would have more of a reason to do so because he has, has had that massive support. Uh, and, he, and he campaigned on it, so yeah. So the, the that so that's why I say that I think there is consensus there in the entire country. You know, of course, we all have different motives. The right wing thinks he's a radical, <laughs> but um, I I definitely agree that see all the all the the programs that I described, like Operation Streamline, he could end them. Yep, he could end 287G. You know, Arpaio's uh, baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could do all that, but he hasn't. In fact. Um, Everything has been worse relative to immigration under Obama. It's it's counterintuitive, but it, that's the, that's the truth. Now, if he had somehow co- created an actual plan and maybe put everything on hold while he unveiled this plan, that'd be one thing. But he hasn't done anything, and so no, uh, no, nobody's giving this guy free ride either. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you contextualize it. And you know you can't. I mean, we can differentiate between the the bigots of the J.D. Haywards of, of the the the, uh, the Glenn Becks and Limbaugh's of the world versus the president. The president is simply a coward, so to speak. You know, these other guys are the actual hooded uh, types. Hmm. And and no, so I I think that in the end, see, I pr- predict or can see where a federal law, you know, Congress signed by the president will preempt um, all these little laws that are being passed all over the country, you know, one more draconian than, than the next. But in the end, they will preempt. The problem is going to be is that he's going to have to tilt it so much to the right that it's the only supposed benefit is that it will be, um, the supposed benefit is that it'll be uniformly uh, for border enforcement, which is, of course, more militarization. That's where he's going to go. Um, yeah, that, that's not good. Well, and, and as you pointed out, um, administratively, he could control uh, the ICE raids that, uh, you know, bundle off parents and separate them from their children. Yeah. That uh, are almost as uh, uh, unconstitutional as what you described in Operation Streamline. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, could, he could do that at any point. And, you know, they, they, like Bush, they make these lame uh, statements about cracking down on employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the crackdown never seems to exceed the benefit uh, that employers enjoy. Uh, and, for example, many people are aware that uh, uh, Hispanics from south of our border uh, are largely providing the labor force in the meatpacking industry in this country. And that these meatpacking companies actively recruit people uh, and tell them, well, look, if you can get to Colorado, we've got a job for you. Mm -hmm. And yet there are no sanctions against them. There's no effort to uh, isolate them, to 
uh, prosecute and lock up the perpetrators of these uh, so-called magnet uh, policies yeah. or magnet uh, job programs that attract a lot of people here illegally. And so we're not willing to deal with this in a comprehensive manner. It really is just a series of sound bites that are playing to the most extreme and racist elements in our uh, American communities. Yeah, yeah, and there's always a relationship between the the extremist and the uh, corporatist, the capitalist. Um, yeah, sometimes you know the money the moneyed people often win. Mm-hmm. You know, it's or maybe those that think they're going to be mo- part of the moneyed interest. Yeah. They always cave into money. Everybody has a price, but no. So I think you know the the, the See, these issues are not new. We've lived with them for all our lives. See, the irony that I write about is that these policies target what people refer to as Hispanic-looking. And, you know, you and I know this, that if we ask ourselves, what does the term Hispanic-looking mean? You know, I think most people think Mexican, number one. And when you think about Mexican-looking, in reality you're thinking Indian-looking. That's the irony of history, that the most Indian-looking are the most suspect. Right, because uh, the, the Castilian uh, uh, of Latin elements pass for white. Exactly. So the more Indian you are or look, the more suspect you are. Mm-hmm. And so here you have hunter battalions chasing Indians, you know, because Indians are illegal. <laughs> kind of like, wow, how did it come to that? Well, we know how it, we came to that. But this is this is where we're at now, you know. Th- th- this is this is something that's pretty outrageous because you know we are responding here in Arizona in different ways, creative ways. You know, of course, the regular type protest, the picket. Now, of course, the big push is going to be a big uh, boycott. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are talking about like lining up, you know, in je- uh, in front of police stations and asking them to uh, you know, search us for our documents, you know, mm-hmm. arrest us, kind of like take their time. And are you willing to do that? Well, of course. I mean, because they really can't do anything to us, but it's kind of like the concept of, it's, you could call it political theater, mm-hmm. but it, it's also the idea of the absurdity of having to check everyone. And since everyone is supposed to be checked, well, why don't we all just volunteer? Yeah. And we can do that every day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're talking about not just Mexican people or Chicanos or, you know, people from the South, but why not everybody? You know, why don't we all volunteer? Because if we're, if we're not doing racial profiling, then maybe the, the redheaded guy can say, hey, please check me because I might be Irish. And I might have, right. You know, I might have come here, you know, by a boat. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that we may have to do, you know, embarrass this place for the whole world to see. And I think the whole world is... is uh, Focused on Arizona, it's you know you know what it is. It, it it rubs against the most basic human values, the idea that somehow you might be guilty because of that you might look like that you you know that yeah. you might be an illegal alien. Like what is that? So is a boycott advisable in in your view? Will we end up hurting the wrong people if, for example, uh, people from California don't come down for spring training? Or, you know, people alter convention or other plans that might have brought them to Phoenix or other parts of Arizona? Well, that's always been the question of any boycott, you know, whether it was apartheid, South Africa, Chile, you know, anywhere in the world. That's the first question that's asked, who actually gets hurt? And sometimes, you know, you accept that, that, yeah, it's possible that the little people might be hurt. It's possible. But if you don't do anything, it's like the equivalent of not just little people are hurt, everyone's hurt. You know, our basic values in this country, you know, um, are threatened. Because, see, this is what people fear. If it was only Arizona, then people would say, well, okay, they're just pretty whacked out over there. But this is pretty much a heartbringer of things to come. I believe there were nine states lined up you know, to do this. Yeah. And why not more? Look at the mm-hmm. healthcare situation. How many governors uh, have rejected it? How many have filed lawsuits? Same thing. Same thing could happen. And so, 
Is there any early effort to challenge this in the courts? It seems uh, un- unconstitutional on the face of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It already happened today. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the uh, sheriff of Pima County that's here in the Tucson area has already said that they will not comply with the law. And there was going to be lawsuits regardless. And I think it was necessary and important for a sheriff to do this, a police chief or sheriff mm-hmm. to do this. And so, of course, it'll be challenged, and that was the point. In other words, we will comply once the courts affirm its constitutionality. You know, until then, we will not go along with the charade. See, this is the pressure that we were putting on, because every police, uh, every chief of police in this state, for the most part, outside of our pale, and, and a few, a few others, uh, for the most part, said this is wrong. It's a racist law, etc. But, but after Brewer signed it. They all said, well, we're against it, but it is the law, so we will comply. And we were saying, no, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. In World War II, as we all know, Jewish people were sent, or not Jewish people, but I wasn't doing that analogy. Uh, the Japanese were sent to internment camps. Now, today, there's a consensus that that was absolutely a uh, black eye in the history of this country. And there's finally a monument or a memorial to the interned Japanese in the nation's capital. Yes, and so the point, the point being is that the country did not recognize that while it was happening, only after the fact. And so this is what we said about this, that we have the opportunity now, today, for people, for chiefs of police to have the moral courage to say, this is a wrong law, we cannot abide by it, we will not enforce it. You know, initially we were getting signals that they would use their discretion and not apply it. But we said, no, we don't need discretion. We need somebody to come up front and say, this is an illegal proposition. Yeah, we need defiance, not discretion. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, the uh, sheriff has done that today. And so it's, it sent out some, uh, it's reverberated throughout the country. And that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Because, again, uh, with that will be a lawsuit. And we will see. Now, of course, the problem is, that until one of the ultra-right-wingers from the Supreme Court, after they leave, then we'll be in good shape. Because at the moment, it's still five to four. You know, it's kind of like the same um, equation that put uh, Bush in, in 2000, same equation. Well, and this is another concern about President Obama that I have, is that uh, <laughs> who will he nominate to replace Justice Stevens? Yeah. And he, uh, the, the I've been kind of avoiding a lot of the speculative reporting, because until... He puts forth a name. It's just so much chatter. But one of the themes that has surfaced, uh, according to insiders at the White House, is that he's looking for a fifth vote, somebody who can bridge between uh, the uh, Scalia, Alito, um, Thomas, and Roberts uh, conservative group and what's left of of liberals on the other side. And uh, I'm troubled by that because that suggests compromise from the get-go. And, right. and certainly compromise consensus, that, that takes place uh, in a, a body like the Supreme Court, and I'm not opposed to that. But when you choose somebody because they don't have a strong ideological base, because they don't have a strong track record of fighting for minorities and those who are on the short end mm-hmm. of our, our scales of justice... Then it's a it's a calculated formula that can lead to more compromise, not clarity. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, Professor, no. finally, uh, let me just ask you what you do recommend for my listeners who would like to add their voice to objection to this legislation in Arizona and to the larger wave of uh, racist anti-immigrant uh, thinking. Well, I think that number one, above and beyond everything, is that they have to think human being first. That is, that human beings have to be at the center of any solution. For example, NAFTA, to me, as onerous as it sounds, if human beings were part of the equation, it wouldn't be so bad. You know, that is, the reason it's bad is because human beings don't count. Yeah. Yeah. And so you put them into the equation, that is, as full human beings, that don't lose their citizenship rights, worker rights, labor rights, et cetera, et cetera, 
uh, you know, and the rights of all fellow human beings where they can bring their families and on and on and on, it wouldn't be so bad because, you know, we do live in an interdependent world, etc. But this is the this this arrangement is the exact opposite of that. Because I think in the end we do have to go to a to global agreements, but again with human beings at the center. You know, at the epicenter. Mm-hmm. And at the moment it's the exact opposite. It's like capital and goods rule. You know, capitalist rule, but uh, human beings don't count. As we know, corporations are human beings, mm-hmm. you know, but actual human beings are uh, less than uh, animal. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I think that's the main thing, and always, you know, always proceed with that. What is the most humane thing we can we can do? And, and that, that'll bring out the solutions. Because the idea that, you know, oh, it's the Jews. No, 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 it's the black. No, no, it's the Irish, you know? It's like, uh, how many times have we heard that in history? Yeah. You're always blaming somebody, you know. Blame the the, the capitalists if, if somebody wants to blame somebody. You know, quit picking on the the most exploited. Professor, a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for your time today, and I'll reference your article at commondreams.org in the the show file at peterbcollins.com so that people can find it and read it for themselves. Sounds good. Roberto, Doctor Sintley, Chintley, how do you say that? Sintley. Sintley, and that means Doctor Corn. Okay, Doctor Corn Rodriguez. My pleasure to know you, sir. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email, even from Arizona, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling.